Fanden. Exterior. Interior. Restaurant. Bar. Club. Day. Night. Action. Merry, 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 and happy, happy, happy. This is Restaurant Fiction, and it's going to be a two-parter, kind of like the most recent Avatar movie. That's right. I think that's a two-parter. I think it's also an eight-parter or a ten-parter. Anyway, this is only a two-parter episode of Restaurant Fiction because uh, we're saving the best for last, and we're going to be starting the new year with a big bang. That's right. And why are we saving the best for last is because Restaurant Fiction talked to Michael Ruhlman. And who is Michael? Well, you know, with Restaurant Fiction, the podcast that reviews every single fictional restaurant, bar, and club, and TV, and film, we have our mentors. Say not our mentors um, personally, but our mentors through the books, through the research that we have learned, that we have studied. And we go to two people out there. And I know that there are many amazing, award-winning food critics out there. But we go to... Jonathan Gold, may he rest in peace. And then we go to none other than Michael Ruhlman. Who is Michael Ruhlman? Well, Michael Ruhlman is, like I said, one of the best food authors, food critics, uh, food personalities um, out there right now. He has redefined the cookbook. And we're not talking about recipes per se or the design or the page layout. We're talking about the story that ooh, maybe in the late 90s, he went into the soul and the mind of a chef. And he transformed how the modern day cookbook and the stories that you read in the modern-day cookbook are told. That's right. Yeah. Can't believe we uh, got him on Restaurant Fiction. And he's not only going to talk about food, but he's also going to talk about one of our favorite fictional restaurants of all time. And that is Gusto's from the Pixar film Ratatouille. Now, why Gusto's with Michael? Well, You'll hear why, but also, guess what? Thomas Keller, I believe, you're going to have, I don't know, but I believe helped with the food creations in the Pixar film Ratatouille. And he is a Michelin star chef for those who don't know. But also, Michael helped write Thomas's cookbooks, especially his claim to fame cookbook all about the French Laundry. Oh yeah, my name's Monis Rose. I am the host of this podcast, but um, it's really not about me. It never is about me. It's about our amazing fucking guest. And this is our chit-chat with Michael Ruhlman and a review of Gusto's from the Pixar film Ratatouille. Go. 
Guys, gals, we dined at a French restaurant, and this French restaurant was very, very French. Now, I could give you the details, but this is going to be very, very high level. What do I mean by very, very French? Well, what I mean by that is very, very Versailles. What is Versailles? Very, very Versailles is uh, gaudy. It is over the top. Um, this restaurant, now, now, obviously, personally, if you do go to modern Paris right now, a, a Parisian restaurant is not Versailles. Okay, so so I just want to make sure that I don't want any uh, harsh feedback being like, oh, no, you know, French food is very modern now and you can get pizza and all that. It's like, I understand. This, though, is like Versailles. This Gusteau's is the French classics. I'm talking about, you know, the confits. I'm talking about the duck all orange, that sort of thing. Now, why does one go to Gusteau's? You know, Gusteau's might have been something very, very special uh, back in the day, you know, kind of like maybe Le Train Blue, which is, you know, that over-the-top uh, French restaurant in the train station, uh, which is also great, you know. Anyway, personally, why does one go? Well, I'm just trying to find a saving grace for Gusto's. And I no disrespect because I do want, even with a rat problem, I would always love a good a good restaurant to stay in business. And it has nothing to do with the great wines that they have because they do have some great Rothschilds and some great Bordeaux and all of that. They're very, very pricey. There is one dish, there is one dish, and it's not the ducks, it's not the crispy crunch of the baguettes, it's a ratatouille type of dish. And I can't really say it is true, true, rustic ratatouille. It's almost like what I would call a confit bialdi, and it is this fine accordion style casserole that isn't really immersed in tomato sauce you can actually taste every single vegetable and it all comes together it's almost as if it was a dish by the great chef of the french laundry uh, thomas keller at least he would be very very proud of this dish but anyway you taste this dish and it is so good that it brings you back to your childhood at least that is if you did have Combi Bialdi or at least any kind of vegetable dish from your childhood. Or at least, and even if you did not have this dish from your childhood, well, you wish you did because it's a great way to eat your vegetables. Anyway, <laughs> anyway that is our very, very quick review. Very, very quick, uh, you know, high level review of Gusto's from the Pixar film Ratatouille. We are talking to the uh, great food writer, the great cookbook writer, the great uh, fiction, non-fiction writer, Michael Roman. Michael, you have to say to that review, what, what's your own spin on it? What's your own take on Gusto's? You can even mention La Ratatouille, which was even the fictional restaurant at the end of the film. Uh, the floor is yours. Well, I think you described it perfectly. You know, you go to a restaurant like Gusto's for the, the whole experience. I would go to a restaurant like Gusto's because of the care that they give to all the food and that everything's done classically and right. And the reason classical is classical is because it's been done for a hundred or more years and it's been refined and refined and refined. 
But what I like about the Ratatouille is that it it, it takes this, you're, you're within the setting of a, a Michelin three-star restaurant, but he's serving you basically an Italian peasant dish, um, a Ratatouille. And it, that does definitely come straight from Thomas Keller. I remember when I first saw one of the chefs actually placing all the all the discs of the various vegetables to make this beautiful pattern, uh, which is not easy to do. It takes some craftsmanship to do that well. But to see them, you know, to see that happen, to see this peasant dish transformed into a dish worthy of Michelin three-star French cuisine is just really exciting to me. And it's fascinating. It's beautiful. It tastes delicious. And as you said, it's transporting. And that's what Keller so often wanted to do. He always looked to his childhood for inspiration. He's in carrots and, and dinty more stew and things like that. I like both the, you know, he, he had a way of mixing very refined adult pleasures with childhood pleasures, like his famous uh, oysters and pearls dish, which you have a sort of savory tapioca pudding, basically tapioca pudding in which he puts two oysters and some oyster juice on top and a spoon of caviar. So you've got this very refined adult taste of caviar. You've got this this great comforting childhood pleasure of tapioca pudding, and it's mediated by these weird oyster you know, oysters. So it's sort of like a high-level French cuisine as imagined by Dr. Zeus uh, is how I, I've always thought of it. Um, and that's what I love about Thomas's food. And that's what I love about Ratatouille. And that's, way, that's what I love about the way it was used in the film. It didn't sort of overwhelm the critic with great respect for the food or impressive because of the craft. It was suddenly he'd been brought back to his childhood. And I think that's the ultimate effect that Thomas wants. He wants you to, and I'm sure Gusto would have, and certainly uh, Remy wanted to transport somebody for a meal to be transportive. And that's really, you know, we talk a lot about chefs being artists, and I've always poo-pooed that. And, you know, I've always said, and Thomas said the same thing, we're craftsmen. You know, you can bring craftsmanship to a very high level, but we're not artists. But I would disagree now with that. And that if you can transport, I mean, the purpose of art is to make us see. And when you can serve food uh, that transports you, that makes you see, that makes you understand your life in a new way, that's food and cooking as art. It's, it very rarely happens, but every now and then it does. And it's extraordinary and exciting when it does. What food transports you to your childhood, regardless if Thomas Keller cooks it or not? <laughs> Because I grew up in the 70s, food was pretty horrible uh, in Midwestern America. Uh, how old are you? I am 37. Okay, so so I'm, I'm, I'm a child of the 80s. You are. I'm, I'm 59. Uh, so I've got more than 20 years on you. Uh, and 20 years of good culinary development throughout the United States. Um, so you've been luckier than I was. So the stuff that transports me is basically meat cooked in Campbell's soup. <laughs> My mom used to do a dish called party chicken in which you would layer a casserole dish with chipped beef, which is like dried beef. It sometimes comes in a can or in a plastic package. And then you put chicken breasts on there wrapped in bacon. And then you mix together a can of cooking sherry. They used to buy it at the grocery store called cooking sherry, which is pretty bad, pretty nasty stuff. A can of cream of mushroom soup and a cup of sour cream. You'd mix that all together, pour it over the chicken, and bake it until the chicken was vulcanized. So hard, you, you know, you barely chew it. It's so hard. That's the kind of thing that 
brings me back home. It's what I ate growing up. Beef stroganoff was made by sauteing strips of beef, floured beef, and then pouring cream of mushroom soup or sometimes a can of tomato soup and that same sherry and that same sour cream over the over the meat and cooking it. I made the party chicken recently because I was so fascinated by it. From my wife was fascinated by it. She found it, I think, fascinating and horrifying. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm sort of determined now to recreate it and make a proper bechamel with wild mushrooms and use chicken thighs instead of breasts and use prosciutto instead of chipped beef to try and make a great party chicken that is done, say, in a more classically French way. I'd love to, do, I'd love to try that. And I'm determined to do that. But that's the kind of stuff that I love. It's the beef stew from my childhood that we would eat in the den watching All in the Family and Sanford and Son. It's the party chicken that mom would make when she had dinner parties. It's that kind of food. It certainly is in high-end French food, which I wouldn't have until I got to the Culinary Institute of America. It, it wasn't, you know, a hot dog. It wasn't, you know, chips and dip. It was those old 70 dishes where things were cooked in soup. <laughs> you at least elevate uh, your sherry game to at least Harvey's Bristol cream, because that is also <laughs> an element of the 70s. <laughs> That's funny. Find a 70s ingredient that would make that work. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I would. When I made this, I was cooking it with my mom, who's the one who made it originally. And she got out a bottle of cooking sherry. I said, Mom, don't put that in there. That's crazy. She says, why? It calls for cooking sherry. Says, it's t-. I said, oh, t- how long has that been in there? She said, I don't know. I said, taste it. She tasted it. And she almost spit it out. It's so bad. I said, you see, you don't want to put that in your food. It's been sitting there for two years. It's not even good wine. So I said, we're going to use a nice dry white wine instead. So that's what I would do. <laughs> not Bristol cream. That's funny. What resonates with you about Gusteau's and the kitchen? What makes it so real for you? This first movie I saw that got kitchen culture exactly right. It got everything right down to the kitchen clogs and the graduated flat tops, you know, the odd shapes of the, of the cooks in the kitchen. And I thought, God, finally, a movie got it right. They really got it right. You know, I'd, I'd watched Adam Sandler in another Thomas Keller related movie. I can't remember what Spanglish, I think it was. <laughs> Didn't get it right. There, there are just so many, so many, so many movies that tried to get the work of the kitchen right that didn't. And once I learned how to cook and learned the great re- and, and learned a great respect for people who cook for a living, who care about this, who work their asses off uh, to do this, I wanted them to be respected with an accurate portrayal of their world. And it never was. It was glamorized. It was sanitized. It, it was phony. And any cook watching those movies just guffaws at it. But they seem to accept it, sadly. Um, this movie didn't accept it. This movie started getting it right. And it, it makes sense culturally. We're, we want to understand the real nature of the kitchen. We're having more literature come out of the kitchen. You know, my book, Soul of a Chef. T- before that, t- Tony's book, Kitchen Confidential, of course, the classic great um, portrayal of 80s debauched cooking culture. We wanted it to reflect the world that we knew. So that's why I love Ratatouille. I, I love the characters. I love the, the caricatures of these chefs because they're, they're all caricatures, but they're, they're done right. The, the, the maniacal chef there who takes over for Gusto, the great 
Colette, I believe her name is the, the fascinating female cook who's tough as tough as nails, which you have to be if you're going to be a woman chef, all that. I just, they, they just got it all right. And I just, I, I just loved it from the, you know, the tiles on the, the details, the tiles on the floor. And sure, there are mistakes, like there's cheese that's not wrapped in the walk-in that you can see behind them. But I'm certainly willing to forgive those little, those little minor glitches in an otherwise truly authentic portrait of what a kitchen is like. How did you find your voice, Michael, and how would you describe it? I found my voice out of fear. When I finished the reporting for The Making of a Chef, my first book about learning to cook, what did you need to know in order to be a cook? We got back home to Cleveland from New York. My then wife said, Michael, we're going to be broke in four months. You need to write this book in four months. And you can't write a book in four months. I'd written one book before then. It took nine months. And even then I was hauling ass just to get it done. But I didn't think like that anymore because I'd learned to cook. And as you know, you don't say no, chef. You don't say, sorry, I can't do it. You say, yes, chef. And so I went to my contract. It stipulated 90,000 words minimum for the manuscript. I divided that by the number of days we had. And I figured out that if I wrote 1,400 words a day, five days a week, revised on Saturday, took Sunday off to rest, I'd have a book in four months. And because I'd learned to cook, because I learned that you never say no, you never didn't get it done. I got my 1,400 words done every single day through a holiday, through Christmas and Thanksgiving, through childhood flus and arguments in the household. And I always got my 1,400 words done. It was sacrosanct. That's how I found my voice. How I start, I said, I'm just going to start typing and I can throw away the first 10 pages. Let's just start. Let's just start moving. Let's just get into it. Start where, Start at the beginning. Get into it. Picking up your, your, your checks and your jacket and your knife kit. That's where it begins. I just started writing. And I realized that as one of the chefs told me, people will be surprised by what they can do when they don't have a choice. And that's what you learn in a kitchen. And that's what I learned when I applied it to my own writing. And how would you describe your voice? I would say, I, I hope it's like, I don't know what it's like to other people. I only know what it's like to me. But I hope that it's like reading a letter from a friend. As casual and easy and easy to read as a letter from a, a beloved friend about what they did that day, about what they ate, about what was exciting. That's really the best lesson. I tell you know students that all, all, all the time. Write, and this is the advice given to me by one of my mentor editors at the New York Times. A great travel story is like a great letter home. And that's what I want everything to be. It's just a, a fun letter home. How do you stay creative and not plateau, Michael? Again, fear. <laughs> fear of poverty. Fear of poverty. Fear of poverty motivates. Again, having cooked, I don't believe in writer's block. Writer's block is a lie. It's, it's, a, it's cowardly and a lie, and you're lying to yourself. And what I love about a kitchen is you can't lie to yourself in the kitchen. Your stuff is cooked and good or it's not. It's clear. Everyone can see it. You're organized, clean, and working smoothly, or you're a mess, and you've got spots in your apron. You've got mise en place on your shoes. I love that about a kitchen. And I learned not to believe in writer's block because I had to write the, the making of a chef in four months. I realized that there is no such thing. So it's, it's a matter of will and discipline. You just have to do it. And 
I'll always get a thousand words written a day when I'm working on a project. That's my that's my current level. That's what I it's, that's a comfortable level. It's not the uh, production speed of making of a chef. It's my comfortable level. A thousand words a day. I'll do that. But sometimes it's no good. You throw it out. But the thing is, you you can't wait for inspiration. You can't lie around on the couch or watch movies or take a walk or whatever, and wait for inspiration to happen. You have to be sitting at your computer in order for, so that when inspiration comes, you're there and ready for it to catch you. And you're there ready to put it down on paper. If you're not there at the computer every day, if inspiration comes, it's going to leave you. It's going to go. So creativity is about hard work, ultimately. Hard, consistent work. What are you eating at Gusto's? And you can even mention the ratatouille. Uh, so I have them pour the wines with the appropriate courses if I have unlimited resources. Uh, and I, I go with the classics. I go with any classic stuff that they have. I, I love the great sauces. I love great tableside service. You know, I love a, a, a Caesar salad mixed tableside, dropping a yolk into the bowl and rubbing it with garlic and all that and the anchovy. I love that stuff. So I would go all classic, whatever the most classic stuff was, I would order. I wouldn't order the ratatouille, probably. <laughs> or if if your if your uh, your mom's Vulcan chicken with the sherry <laughs> is on the menu, <laughs> I'd definitely give that a go. But I wouldn't have high hopes for it. Thank you, Michael. We really appreciate you coming aboard Restaurant Fiction to end the amazing 2022 Restaurant Fiction season. And we are going to start 2023 with a big bang, like we said at the beginning, with none other than your badass self. But until now, and until you hear Michael on the Restaurant Fiction podcast again, check him out. That's right. He's all over. First and foremost, go to his website. That is www.rulman.com. That is spelled R-U-H-L-M-A-N.com. There, you can know all about this amazing person, the books he wrote, that he consulted with, the shows he is on, the YouTube educational channels. I mean, he is all around the globe at all all times. He loves his fans. He loves his audience. And of course, we're biased. I mean, he loves restaurant fiction. Anyway, check out Michael Ruhlman. Uh, personally, for us, besides, um, you know, he had a big hand in the uh, French Laundry Cookbook, among other Thomas Keller cookbooks, but also our favorite personally is The Soul of the Chef. Before that, he did The Making of the Chef, which was his time in the Culinary Institute of America, which is also amazing, especially for either the people out there who are interested in going to the CIA, not the government uh, spy CIA, but the cooking CIA. And also, if you just want that, for those who actually experience the CIA, just read it and see if it rings true to you. But it is an amazing food writing mecca. Epic. Mecca epic? I don't think that makes sense. That's right. Well, anyway, this is Restaurant Fiction, the podcast that reviews every single fictional restaurant, bar, and club in TV and film. My name is Monis Rose. We wish you the best and the brightest. Merry, merry, and happy, happy towards the end of 2022. 
And we will be back in 2023. And like this whole season, this whole 2022 season of Restaurant Fiction, if nothing made sense, well, guess what? Nothing ever does. Peace. Exterior. Interior. Restaurant.